Well, good morning. It is such a pleasure and a joy to be here with you this morning and to be able to serve Pastor Eric in this way. He's been just a tremendous encouragement to me uh, through the Presbytery. We got to know each other uh, when I was first coming in to uh, the EPC and coming to Greystone. And so it's just a privilege. Eric, thank you for having me. And congregation, thanks for giving me such a warm welcome. It's been so wonderful just to see a few of you uh, before the service and to have the elders um, uh, have time and to come and to, to lift our hearts together in prayer. Uh, if you haven't already turned to Ephesians 4, uh, that's our passage for this morning, Ephesians 4. And I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, which might differ from the Pew Bible. Um, but what I'd like to do today is uh, get into this passage. It's got some really good stuff for how we live out our calling as the church. What does God have in store for us? How does he want us to live with one another? And what does he expect from us? So without any further uh, pause, let's go ahead and turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 4. Hear now God's word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to that one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. That's a long passage. I know that's a lot to hear. But it's really good, and it's really hard to take a chunk of it and not hear all of it in its context. But what I'd like to do is just mention, you know, in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul has been reminding the Ephesians of the good news. He's been reminding them of the gospel, the reality of how God has been gracious to them in their life. In chapter 1, he just gives this beautiful picture of God's grace of just how amazing his grace is. And then in chapter 2, it's that famous part where he says, But you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but you have been made alive through the grace of God. 
That's what it's the summary of what Paul is saying in chapter 2. It's an amazing idea that we were once considered children of wrath, but through Christ, through God's love and his grace, we've been made alive. So Paul is reiterating this to the Ephesian church. He's reminding them of God's gracious and amazing work in their life. And in chapter 4, what he does is he shifts away from the indicative, this idea of what God has done, to the imperative, this idea of what we should be doing because of what God has done in our lives. So the first three chapters, Paul has focused on what God has done in our lives, in the life of the believers of the Ephesian church. And now he's segueing to talk about, so this is how you should live. And so this is what he says. He encourages the people to live like people that have been rescued by God. In other words, he's saying there's a manner of life. There's a way that we should be living that should be visible in God's people. And he describes it this way in verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now that sounds like the church, right? Does that sound like the church? I know. Thank you for your honesty. I think we've all probably heard or maybe even been a part of churches uh, that have struggled to do this. We're, we're not exactly perfect people, right? I've heard a saying, you know, I, I don't go to a perfect church. If I ever am a part of a perfect church, it will no longer be perfect because I'm there. That's the idea that we, we are not perfect people. And the church does not always live in the way that we should be living. This manner of life that is worthy of the calling of Christ. All humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I mean, Paul's asking for a lot, right? That's just hard to do. How are we supposed to live like that? I think Jesus is really the only person that could live that way. And actually, that, that's kind of Paul's point. Because Paul's point, as we will come to see in this passage, is that if we have been rescued and redeemed through Christ, our lives as the church is actually supposed to grow into living this way we are actually supposed to grow together to look more like jesus we're supposed to represent jesus here on earth here in this community so how are we supposed to live like jesus now i know we just came out of the holiday season as was mentioned and i don't know if you're one of those people that makes new year's resolutions maybe uh you know sometimes some of us like to stick to some diets but then over the holidays, we, you know, we switch gears. We totally we loosen the belt, right? We let things go. We eat a lot of sweets. I, if you're anything like me, I love cookies. I love cookies. Holiday season, my mom makes big batches of cookies, and I love going home and having some of her cookies. And so I want to just apologize. If you're trying to, to eat healthier, maybe lay off the sweets and those tasty treats, I'm going to use the analogy of a recipe to unpack this passage this morning. So I just apologize ahead of time. I do not want to cause you to stumble. I know we're coming up on the lunch hour too, so I'm just doing all kinds of wrongs here. But I really think that the analogy of a recipe really helps us to understand how we are supposed to live like Christ wants us to live. How we're supposed to look more and more like Jesus Christ as a body. So every uh, good recipe has essential ingredients in it. And then a process to bring those ingredients together. If you were going to make really good chocolate chip cookies, you got to have some essential ingredients, okay? you got to have delicious chocolate chips, 
Okay, you've got to have brown sugar. You need eggs. You need vanilla. You need some flour. You need baking soda. Does anyone know what ingredient I left out? Powder. What? Powder. Powder and salt. That's right. Salt. How many of you know salt is in chocolate chip cookies? All right, that's good. You keep on going with that ministry. There's some people that don't put salt in chocolate chip cookies. You're missing out. Salt is an often forgotten ingredient in chocolate chip cookies, and yet its purpose is to help draw out the sweetness of the chocolate and the sugar. It's supposed to make that cookie balanced and just make a substantial difference in it. And hopefully you get the point. Paul uses this section of of this letter to the Ephesian church to give a recipe for the church of how Christ-likeness should uh, be exhibited in the church. This recipe is a formula that's been given by God to the church to help his people change. People like you and me help us change from being weak, from being selfish, from being easily divided and, and maybe staying you know, isolated to ourselves and help us to become people, a people that is brought together, united, that resembles Jesus Christ. So Paul's going to give a recipe, and here's the recipe. It's going to sound really simple. The recipe is this. Unity, diversity, and you bring those things together with a process called speaking the truth in love. So Paul, in this passage, talks about the unity, that the people of God should be united because they are united by the redeeming grace of God. He then talks about diversity, that each has been given a gift according to the grace of God, And the gift is for a specific purpose. It's not just for me. The gift that I have from God is not for me. It is actually for others. So these gifts have been given for the benefit of the whole church. And then the process, speaking the truth in love. If the Ephesian church was ever going to start looking a little bit more like Jesus, the first thing that they need to do is know their true uh, identity marker, the thing that unites them, the first ingredient that they need to know about is the thing that brings them into unity. And that is this. Each of them has been united together by the redeeming grace of God. If people are going to live out Paul's charge to live in a manner worthy of the calling that they have received, they will need to be united by something very powerful. I mean, you just think about how easily we can feel divided. Right now, our nation probably feels more divided and polarized than it ever has. I don't want to even get into sports analogies with allegiances to sports teams, although I think I'm in Steeler country. Am I right? Yeah? Okay. And if there's anyone who's not, that's okay. You don't have to speak up. But basically, I mean, if we think about unity in the world, you have to be united around something central. You have to be, there has to be something that is central to your purpose and the reason that you are united together. If you're on a sports team, you need to be united around the the same goals or the likelihood of division and failure is very high. And, you know, if you deviate from what unites you, it kind of breaks down the fellowship, doesn't it? I mean, if you know that someone on your team isn't going the same way that you're going, that's going to break down the fellowship. You're going to begin to maybe not trust that person. Maybe you're going to have questions about their loyalty and in how we're trying to get to where we need to be. Now, I, I know that um, there might be some superstitions about bringing up the Pittsburgh Steelers on a playoff day. So I'm going to withhold any more uh, Pittsburgh sports analogies. And I want to use an illustration this morning of music. 
If we tried to put a, a band together, say we were going to do a concert somewhere and we wanted to put a band together, it's going to be really important as we gather you know, the people of that band, it's going to be really important that when they rehearse and when they play, they're all playing the same song, right? That's, pretty, like, that's a key component. It's, it doesn't work very well to gather a bunch of people who play and sing different parts and then just let them play and sing whatever they want. That's chaos, and chances are it's not going to sound very good. And really, the church is, uh, is not much different. I mean, if you just think about uh, what it is that God is calling us to, we all have to be on the same page. We have to be playing the same song. It's not unity if we're all coming to church to do our own little thing. But God has called us together with a purpose. And so what Paul is doing here in this passage, he's reminding them that the thing that unites them, the same song that unites them, is that God has graciously rescued them to be called his children. Look around the room this morning. Go ahead and look around. Take time. Look at your neighbor. Look behind you if you want. Don't look too hard. We don't need any you know, strained necks or anything. I mean, what a monumental task it is to get even just this many people to be united around something. I mean, we all come with different experiences. We come maybe from different places, different backgrounds, different interests, different gifts and skills. So how are we going to stay united? How are we going to serve one another and reach the call of Christ? We have to remember what we are united by, that each of us has been touched in a special way by the grace of God, that we can remember maybe a time or maybe a season when we have experienced God's love and grace in our lives in a special way. And what God does is he brings us together as a body. He unifies us through that. You know, Paul gives this big list of ones, one body, one spirit, one hope that belongs to the call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And these ones just highlight this central point. Brothers and sisters, if we have been touched by God, we now have a new allegiance in our life, something that unites us to one another, that's stronger than the earthly bonds that we see. It's a foundation that supersedes all socioeconomic barriers. It doesn't matter about your own personal holiness. Your merit doesn't earn this status. Okay, It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, whether you've been to church all your life or maybe you're just new in the faith. You know, basically, this foundation starts from receiving the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation that brings the Ephesian church and brings this church, Bethel Church, together. You guys have experienced God's grace in your life. And so that's the first ingredient. It's an important ingredient. If the church is going to really live and look like Jesus Christ, we need to understand that we have been brought together because we've all experienced his salvation in our lives. Now, the second ingredient is diversity. God gives his church gifts that are for the benefit of the whole community. In verse 7, Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And again, in our world, you know, diversity is a, is a very popular aspiration. But God's diversity isn't superficial. It's not diversity for diversity's sake. See, when God brings people together that are diverse, that have different gifts and backgrounds, he's bringing us together, and it's a divine intervention. Do you know that? 
The fact that you're sitting in the room with someone on this side of the room, it's, that's an act of God. That he has brought you together for a very specific reason. When God brings people together, it's not just random diversity, but in his providence, in his masterful, sovereign will, he brings people from all different experiences and backgrounds and with different skills and passions and loves. He brings us together to increase our unity. Our gifts and our experiences and just the uniqueness, the diversity that is represented in this room, he brings us together so that we'll all grow closer in our bond with God. So we'll look more and more like Jesus. If you think about diversity in the world, it's a challenge because oftentimes the more diverse that you become, the more you risk becoming uh, ununified. You know, you risk disunity. And as an organization gains in members and grows in diversity, the likelihood of, of factions and divisions grow. And we can know this is true in the church. As a church grows, you have some of those growing pains. People have different preferences of maybe what the music should look like or maybe what the carpet should look like. or you know, I don't know what you've experienced in your life, but you know what these things are. We have different preferences about how things should look. And as we get more people in, maybe with different experiences and new ideas, that can be a real challenge. And Paul is no stranger to this. I mean, a lot of his time spent writing the letters to the different churches, he spent talking about fighting division. As you become more diverse, you need to be unified. You need to remember what brings you and holds you together. And you need to use your gifts to increase that unity. See, God's design for diversity isn't that it actually divides us and that it challenges us, but his design for diversity is that it actually unifies us in a greater way. Back to the illustration about musical instrument or uh, the musicians and building a band. If we were building an ensemble, the last thing that we would want to do is have a lot of duplicates. You know, I don't know if you've ever been playing in a band or ever sung in a choir, but in a singing group, you really—it's nice to have different parts. You want people to sing different expressions of music. You want the bass and the tenor and the alto and the soprano to be all singing different parts because it brings fuller expression to all of the tones that we can hear. Even though singing and playing in unison, you know, can sound really powerful, you know, when a chorus comes together and everyone sings the same note, it can sound really powerful and strong, but if you sing a whole song in unison, sometimes, sometimes it can sound a little flat. It can sound a little one-dimensional. It can sound a, a little boring. And I use this illustration to say this, but really... If you have a, a piece of music that has a strong unison and then resolves or moves into different parts where you hear maybe strong low basses and you hear high sopranos and all the midtones, it really fills out the song, doesn't it? really adds to the beauty. I think the, the Gaither uh, vocal group does this really well. They're a, a group that has existed for decades, known for powerful unison melodies and then strong harmonies that bring out the power of a song. And that's exactly what the church is supposed to be like. We're supposed to have these moments where we're moving in the same direction. We're all in the same song. But then we use our gifts together, and it creates a beautiful expression of God's love to the world and to one another. It's really no different for the church. You know, we, sometimes we think it might be nice to have a room full of people exactly like us, right? Let me tell you, that would be the worst church you could possibly attend. You might go for a little bit, and you might love it. 
I mean, just imagine, I just imagine if there was a church that was just entirely filled with people just like me, there would be a week honeymoon period where I would just love that church, right? But then I would get so annoyed with all the things that people like me can't do. Ways that they can be compassionate and they can serve. Ways that they can listen. Ways that they can teach. Ways that they can encourage. You know, ways that I am just not gifted like they are. And you can probably understand, you know, if you had a church filled with people just like you, you would probably hate that church. If you came to a church of, of people uh, that was filled with people just like me, you'd probably hate that church too. You'd come to church and you'd say, wow. So this is the church, huh? This is this big thing that God's been talking about that's supposed to change the world and, and represent Christ on earth. It would be dull. It would be boring. You'd probably find something else to go and do on a Sunday. But see, Paul writes that God's design is that each person has been given a gift, and God uses that gift, that diversity, and he uses it to strengthen the church. We see in verse 12, these gifts are given for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. And then in verse 11, Paul also mentions a very cool thing, that God, Christ, gives pastors and apostles and teachers and evangelists and prophets. He gives these people to the church to help them be equipped for that ministry, to help them be equipped for this important work. I think this is so interesting because it's important to notice it's not the pastor's jobs or the elders' jobs to do the work of ministry, to, to be the ones who are building up this body. They can only do so much. They can only equip and organize and encourage. But it's really the work of the congregation. It's the job of each of you in this room to invest in this church and to help it to grow, to encourage one another to grow in your nearness to God and your love and compassion for those who are walking far from him. That's the, that's the job of the church. Now, another thing about uh, verse 11 that I'd like to point out, oftentimes when we think about these five roles, we think of people just primarily speaking. You know, this is like when the pastor teaches or when he preaches or maybe when an elder gives a lesson but really, equipping the church happens in much more ways than just speaking. I mean, a pastor and the shepherds and these five offices equip the church more than just through information transfer, but by living a life that's, that's worthy of following, by walking alongside you in difficult times and encouraging you, maybe by being perceptive and just realizing this is a time we need to be in prayer. I think prayer in the church can go a lot further that in equipping the saints that maybe teaching can at some times. The two can't be isolated from one another. They have to go hand in hand. But, I mean, a pastor praying for his congregation is a powerful way to equip them. Elders praying for their people. And that's God's point. He's created diversity in his church to increase their unity. Just like salt in a chocolate chip cookie brings out the sweetness in the cookie, diversity in God's church should make our unity stand out all the more. It should help our unity to be more robust. And Paul describes how that diversity should be taking effect. If we read, uh, picking up at the end of verse 12, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's huge. So that we're no longer children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into him who is the head, from whom the whole body is joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, our gifts and experiences, the diversity of this room, we have been brought together by God so that we can build one another up. So that together, as we all are growing as individuals, we're growing collectively so that we would look more like Christ. But just because it should happen doesn't mean it does happen. Just because that's the way it should work doesn't mean it does always work that way. I mean, we are still kind of messed up people. We're not perfect. We still have shortcomings, and we still have our own selfishness that gets in the way. And so the critical step in the recipe is the particular process that brings our unity and diversity together. And that process is speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is a really interesting phrase. Um, A lot of ink has been spilled about what does it mean to speak the truth in love. How do we do that with one another? And so the first part is this, simply speaking the truth. That's a direct contrast to verses 13 and 14, where the church is described as no longer, hopefully no longer, being this place that is deceived by deceitful schemes, a place that is tricked by human cunning, a place that is moved around by every wind of doctrine. But hopefully it's a place where people can stand firm And know what the truth is. And so the church is supposed to be a place where truth is is given. We're not supposed to be a place where we remain immature and unfruitful. You know, the challenge is we can be tempted to once in a while let the world influence us a little too much. We could be tempted maybe to gossip. Maybe we can be tempted to avoid somebody who's maybe wandering in sin because we don't want to get into it. We don't want to get into the mess of it. That's a dangerous temptation. That's a threat to the unity and the diversity of the church. It keeps the church from growing to be all it needs to be. And so the first thing we have to do is we have to speak the truth. But we can't just speak the truth without love. That's the second part. We speak the truth in love. This echoes Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. Well, Paul begins that chapter by saying, If I can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, then I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, he's saying, if I have a spiritual gift, and it might be an amazing spiritual gift, but I don't love someone else in my church, in my my body, then I'm just like a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal. He continues, he says, if I have all the faith to move a mountain, but not love. I am nothing. That is amazing. He writes that love is patient and kind. It's without envy or boasting, and it does not insist on its own way. You know, love, as Paul is describing it in 1 Corinthians, it goes beyond just the superficial or romantic or even sentimental notions of love. I mean, listen to that. Patient, kind, without envy or boasting, does not insist on its own way. I mean, that just taps into, like, the longings of our heart, Right? That's the kind of love that Christ has given to us. He's committed himself to us with that kind of love. And Paul's saying we should show that same type of commitment toward one another. It's a commitment to do life together. It's a commitment to walk through life together. 
about using our gifts for each other's well-being. Your scriptural love is not primarily about affection or even necessarily liking one another. What's really funny about the church is, you know, God tries to bring together people that naturally probably shouldn't get along very well. And he wants them to love one another, to commit to one another's well-being. Why? Because each has received his grace. Each has been touched by his hand and saved through the, the power of the cross of Christ. You know, the process of speaking the truth in love is really typically not that complicated, but it can be very difficult. You know, one pitfall is we may struggle to speak the truth. We may be tempted to gossip or slander or maybe tell a white lie or maybe simply just remain silent and not get involved, not say anything. Another problem is we might struggle to actually speak that truth in love. We may say the truth with some harshness in our, in our attitude. We might speak it with some ill will, wanting to just basically use words to slap somebody upside the head rather than to lead them back to Christ. Speaking the truth in love doesn't mean that I can tell a person what they're doing wrong and walk away. Speaking the truth in love, when we do that together in the church, it means that I come up and I can talk to a person and I make sure they know I'm willing to walk with them through it. So if there's something that somebody's going through that's a challenge to them, or maybe there's something that they don't see, I need to be humble and I need to be able to walk up to them and say, I know this is going on. This can't continue. And you need to know I'm here for you and I will walk with you through this. That's speaking the truth in love. And that's powerful. It can often be uh, pretty simple in what it takes to do, but it can kind of feel like a big sacrifice. As we see in Jesus, who laid down his life for our well-being to bring us back into relationship with God, sometimes we're going to have to sacrifice, give up a little bit of our time, give up a little bit of our resources, give up a little bit of our life to help encourage one another maybe back into better relationship with God. Sometimes we're going to have to sacrifice for the well-being of one another. But it's important work. God's called us to live in a manner worthy of our calling. He wants us to be used by uh, He wants us to be used for His glory to spread the news of Christ, the good news of Christ in the communities where we live. So that's the recipe. Unity, diversity, brought together in this process of speaking the truth in love. That's how God helps transform the church from being children of wrath, these selfish, immature, self-serving, you know, divisive types of people, isolated, and bringing us together to become the body of Christ, a group of people that actually represents Jesus Christ here on earth. So what does this mean for us? I think there's some truths we can take away from this. The first thing is that it means we cannot grow on our own. You cannot be a Christian on your own spiritual island and expect to grow and look like the body of Christ. I love the imagery that Paul uses in this text. Unless we are growing together as individuals into the full measure of Christ, we will be like children tossed by the waves of life and carried around by the false doctrines and the schemes of other people. We're going to be blown about by the world. Now, I have a, a three-year-old son and one of the things that we like to do is we like to go to the beach, try to make it a habit to do the long journey to find some shore and get near the waves. He loves the ocean. 
One of the things that I remember distinctly about one of the first times we ever went to uh, the ocean, he was old enough to interact with the ocean in, in a responsible way, was that um, you know he would go and sit in where the waves are just coming up to the shore. You know, we're talking like an inch, maybe less than an inch of water, maybe a couple inches of water as the tide comes in. And I remember just realizing, my son, he's pretty dense. He's a pretty hefty boy, okay? He's, he is pretty muscular. And so I, I remember sitting him in the sand and just thinking, oh, he'll be fine. It's just a little bit of water. And just seeing this little bit of water just move his body and tip him over and have the water come rushing over him. He thought, and I thought at the time, that he was okay just playing in, in this little bit of water by himself. And yet, just the slightest amount of wave just rocked him. That's the image of what it looks like when the church is not united together and using their gifts and growing together in, in Christ. He's not grow, we're not growing like that. We're going to look like a child being thrashed about in the waves. Whereas the contrast is I can go out and stand in a couple feet of, of water, you know, up to my hips, and not be moved. The water moves around me. Even a strong current, it's amazing how, you know, adults can stand out in that and kids can just get, you know, thrown back into the shore. That's the imagery that Paul uses here. And he does not abandon us to grow on our own. He does not want that for us. He gives us a family full of gifted individuals to help us grow. But we all need to be coming like Jesus. We all need to be growing. Spiritual growth does not happen on our own. And this really makes sense. I mean, think about this. Sometimes we're just too hard on ourselves, aren't we? We're too hard on ourselves. Sometimes we need God's grace to be spoken into our lives. We need someone to help us forgive ourselves, maybe for something we've done wrong, maybe for a way of thinking or a habit that we have in our life. Sometimes we will hold a grudge on ourselves that God has forgiven in the cross, but we don't accept that forgiveness for ourselves. The body of Christ can come alongside and help you forgive yourself, help you know better the fullness of God's love. On the other hand, sometimes we're not very good at seeing our own weaknesses, right? Sometimes we can't see the sin that's in our life or see the ways that we need to grow. And it takes people that we trust, people that are committed to our well-being to hold up the mirror and to help us see those things. That's what it means to speak the truth in love. It's the beauty of the body that God is building. I mean, that kind of accountability isn't always comfortable, but it makes us more like Christ. And when we are becoming more like Christ, God will be able to do more powerful things through this church to help reach the lost, to help heal brokenness in relationships and in families. The second thing that we can learn from this um, the first thing, you know, we can't grow on, on our own. And that means that every member is essential. Every member is essential. Every member of the body. I love how this passage ends. Jesus Christ is the head of this body and he joins each part together. And when each part works properly, the body builds itself up. So what happens if each part is not working properly? What happens if we don't commit? What happens if we don't show up? If every member is essential, it means we've all got to be willing to be present. We've all got to be willing to be invested. And so Paul, what he's doing in this passage, he's saying, look, you've all been touched by the grace of God. God has given you gifts and experiences, and you are an essential member of your church body, the body of Christ here on earth. You have been called to this place for a purpose, 
And so we have to take stock and we have to ask ourselves some simple questions. Am I worshiping with my church family? Do I really come and am I invested in our gathered worship together? Am I uh, connected in meaningful relationships that challenge me to grow? You know, am I building relationships with other people that helps me to know how I need to, to grow as a follower of Christ? And am I serving? Am I using my gifts? Am I using my time and my talent, maybe my treasure? And could I be doing more? That's what we have to ask ourselves. If we really want to grow into this beautiful picture that Paul gives of the church, this church that exists with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the peace, this church that looks like Jesus, well, then we have to embrace our unity. We have to not let things divide us anymore. We have to use our gifts, and we have to be present. Every member is essential. We have to use those things by speaking the truth in love. Would you please join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word speaks truth uh, in our lives. Sometimes it can give us the encouragement that we need to be bold in our faith, maybe to maybe get out of the rut that we feel like we've been in. Sometimes your word cuts us like a knife, Lord. It can accuse us and convince us and convict us of uh, just how we maybe have wandered from your ways. Lord, we just know that in your word, um, for all the conviction and for all the ways that it stirs us and encourages us, your word also comes with the grace to put our faith in you and to trust that you can help us walk in obedience. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bless this congregation. You'd bless each one of us as we consider your word and how you have called us together as a body. How can we live out that calling together? How can we take our next step to grow closer as a family that resembles Jesus Christ in this world. We ask you to guide us as we continue to give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.